Well, good morning. My name is Dave Roberts. I'm on staff here at Moran Park uh, Church, and uh, it's exciting uh, morning. Uh, I'm going to be doing a little bit of teaching, but also uh, another person that's been a part of Moran Park for about a year, Ben Post. Uh, he is going to be teaching with me as well, and Ben and his wife Stacy are uh, working over at Grand Valley State University in their campus ministry program over there, and so Ben is going to share uh, in a little bit, so we're going to kind of tag team the message together. Um, before we get started, though, I asked a couple people, a couple kids, to help me out this morning, um, and so those kids, why don't you come on up? If I ask you, come on up. I might need a, a couple more. I need a couple of you over on that side of the stage and a couple of you on this side of the stage, and there is a puzzle that you need to be working on, okay? Parents, they're just going to be working on a puzzle throughout the, the message, and we will get to that. Come on up. Okay, perfect. Piper, why don't you be over there? I need a couple over here. Perfect. You three, and then you guys over here. That one, okay? Bust open that puzzle and get to work. You have about 22 and a half minutes to complete that puzzle. <laughs> if you can get into the box. Go ahead. Don't, no, no further instructions. Just have fun. Create the puzzle. You guys, there you go. Perfect. So Tuesday afternoon. Tuesday afternoon, I was uh, running on a treadmill and uh, as I was running on the treadmill, I was watching a football game. Not American football, world football, World Cup soccer, if you will. I was watching uh, a game, and I've been loving the World Cup because uh, it just has been fascinating to watch. But I was running on a treadmill, headphones in my ears, and I'm watching this game on the TV that is in the treadmill. And it's towards the end of the game. And then all of a sudden, there was this dramatic goal. And while I'm running on the treadmill with the earbuds in, I screamed really loud and everybody in the gym like, started looking like, what's going on with that dude? <laughs> I don't have a particular country that I'm rooting for, uh, a team that I'm rooting for, but one of the things that I love about the World Cup, the thing that I've loved uh, in watching the World Cup has mainly been uh, not the game, yeah, but the fans. I mean, they are absolutely crazy. I got a couple pictures up here. Look at that. <laughs> I, I love the fans because it's like all of a sudden, like when it comes to the World Cup, it's not about the individual, it's about a country, it's about a group of people, and it's like their individual identity gets lost in the mask that they're wearing. <laughs> I, these are elaborate, this is absolutely crazy, and I love the emotion that comes with the World Cup. <laughs> I had a couple other pictures that I wanted to show, it was just as pictures of kids weeping and adults weeping after their team lost uh, their game. And I absolutely love the emotion of the World Cup and this whole sense that the individual gets lost as all of a sudden it's not about a person, individual person, but about an entire country. And this morning, we're going to look at 2 Corinthians 6. And there's something absolutely foundational that we need to understand when it comes to who we are, not individually, but who we are as a community, or more specifically what we are as a community. So if you could turn to your Bible, in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians 6, starting in verse 14. I'm going to read through verse 7. Apostle Paul tells believers in Corinth this, Do, Don't team up with those who are unbelievers. How can righteousness be a par partner with wickedness? How can light live with darkness? What harmony can there be between Christ and the devil? How can a believer be a partner with an unbeliever? What union can there be between God's temple 
and idols. For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will live in them and walk among them. I will be their God and they will be my people. Therefore, come out from among unbelievers and separate yourselves from them, says the Lord. Don't touch their filthy things and I will welcome you. I will be your father and you will be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. Because we have these promises, dear friends, let us cleanse ourselves from everything that can defile our body or spirit and let us work towards complete holiness because we fear God. I'm going to have Ben take over from here. Good morning. I believe that everything communicates something. I believe that the way we live our lives, how we spend our time, the things we post on social media, our material possessions, everything communicates something. Even the houses that we live in. So my wife Stacy and I, we live right here uh, in this house. It's on 23rd Street between Pine and Maple, so we're really close. And you can come over and sit on our porch anytime we would love to meet you. Okay, this is where we live. Now, about a week ago, there's a guy by the name of LeBron James who got traded to the Los Angeles Lakers. A year ago, he bought a house in L.A. This is the house that LeBron James bought in L.A. 15,000 square feet, 8 bedrooms, 11 bathrooms, $23 million. Everything communicates something. And if this is true, then what might be communicated if we are comparing where LeBron James lives and where I live? And maybe, maybe one conclusion would be, I think I got a better deal on a house, but <laughs> that's beside the point. In the ancient world, there was also a theology of buildings. There were pagan gods who also had houses. And the theology was, the bigger the house, the more important the god. And in the city of Corinth, there were two temples to other gods. Okay, one of those, this is the temple here, this is a temple to the god of Apollo. Apollo's temple now has seven of these columns that still stand. Initially, it had 38 columns. Pretty impressive. Uh, Apollo's the god of prophecy and music and sun and stuff like that. Okay, there's another temple that was, that was in Corinth as well. This temple was to the god of Aphrodite. Aphrodite's temple stood on this big mountain in the background right here. Sorry, I don't have a laser that can hit that TV over there for the people in the cafe, but I think you guys can see the mountain over there. The mountain is 1,800 feet towering over the lower city. And on top of that mountain was a temple to Aphrodite. Aphrodite was the Greek goddess of sexual pleasure and fertility. And her temple was impressive. Everything communicates something. But in the ancient world, it wasn't just pagan gods or goddesses who had temples or houses in which they lived. God, the God that we worship, the God of our Bible, also had a house, 
also had a temple. I'm going to do a quick history lesson on the temple uh, for you guys. In 1000 BC, a guy by the name of King Solomon constructed the first temple. Uh, And then eventually in 586 BC, the Babylonians came in. Oh, by the way, this was Solomon's temple here. It would have looked sort of like this. Now, here's what I need you guys to do. This is really hard for me even to grasp. But God, our God, lived here. This was his house. This is where his presence dwelled. Now, that's really hard for you and I to understand because we understand God being like everywhere all the time, right? But at this time, this is where he lived. And it was pretty impressive. 586 BC, the Babylonians came in, they wiped out the temple, the Israelites were exiled into Babylon, eventually the Persians conquered the Babylonians, and the Persians gave some money to the Israelites to say, go back to your land, and we'll even give you some money to help you build another temple. And so a second temple was built in 516 BC, and then after that, there's this guy by the name of Herod the Great. Have you guys heard of Herod the Great? Herod the Great was kind of the de facto king of the region during the birth of Jesus. What he is known for is the guy who killed all the babies in Bethlehem during that time. The other thing that he's really well known for is his passion and desire for constructing massive buildings. He was an incredible builder. And so in 37 BC, Herod the Great renovated and expanded the second temple. Now, I want to show you a picture. Here is a model in Jerusalem of what Jerusalem would have looked like during the time of Jesus. This is what Herod the Great and his people, uh, this is the temple that he would have built for God, our God that we worship. What I want you to see is just the size of this thing. This is not just some small church on the corner somewhere. This thing is covering the entire city, right? Here's what it looks like today. You can see the rectangle around the Dome of the Rock sits where the temple actually stood at one point. But it dominates the entire city. The smallest wall is the southern wall over here. That was 300 yards. That's three football fields by about five football fields. It's a really big building. Now, How did they build something like this 2,000 years ago? So Dave wanted me to share a few things about what this construction project might have looked like. They guesstimate about 10,000 workers to help build this thing, including about 1,000 priests, because only priests could go to certain parts of the area. Um, And then using pickaxes, they would dig these channels in a rock quarry, And they would dig a channel all the way around the rock, about four or six inches wide. And they would dig down, 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 down until they hit like the next bedrock layer. Then they would insert these wooden beams into two of those channels, pour water over it, causing the wood to expand so that it would pop out of the bottom layer. Then they would somehow lift up these massive rocks and transport them down to this area here. Archaeologists found a ancient rock quarry about two miles north of the old city, about 200 feet in elevation higher than this place here, and so they built a road right next to, from the quarry down to the Temple Mount area. They estimate that it would take about four oxen 
to carry a six-ton stone. They were not these little bricks that they were carving out. They were these massive stones. So about four oxen for about a six-ton stone or 10 pairs of oxen for maybe a 50 to 60-ton stone. They were large stones. And then they also would figure out how, how would they even lift these stones up. It's one thing to use oxen to transport them down, but it's another thing to lift them up. And so they estimate that maybe three men of average weight would be in like this giant gerbil wheel. Do you guys know what those things are? Do people even have pet gerbils anymore? I don't even know. That was a thing when I was a kid. I don't know if that's true anymore. But they would put these three grown men in this giant gerbil wheel, and they would like walk like this to use some sort of pulley system to lift up these rocks for the smaller rocks, you know, only six tons. <laughs> but then the larger rocks, they would have to use several pulley systems together somehow to lift up these rocks. Herod also had these margins chiseled around each stone. See this little margin thing right here, about two inches wide or so, maybe a half inch deep. And he wanted everybody to know that each rock was cut perfectly and individually, and it's not just this massive wall, but there's this individual blocks that were put into the, uh, into the temple construction project. In addition to that, you see this little seam right here, right there between those two stones? No mortar or cement was used in any of his construction here. These stones were cut so perfectly that I can't even swipe my credit card through there 2,000 years later. You guys are doing a good job. There's one archaeologist who said that Herod's masons may have taken eight years of working on each of these stone blocks before he would begin the actual construction. Um, this is my friend John. He's about six feet tall. There's one of those stones for you. Here is one other stone. That's the size of that stone there. This is not the largest stone they found. The largest stone they found is 45 feet long, 11 and a half feet tall, and 15 feet thick. They estimate that it weighs maybe 570 tons. How in the world they lifted that, I have no idea. But that would be like 31 charter buses that they would have to lift up in order to put in place. And it was cut perfectly and placed in just the right spot. I see some of you out here going, wow, this is pretty impressive, isn't it? You know, even Jesus' disciples were impressed with this construction project. They said this in Mark chapter 13. As they were leaving the temple, Jesus' disciples were saying, look at these stones. What massive stones, what magnificent buildings. But Jesus foresaw the day when this temple would no longer stand. And he said, not one stone here would be, would be still standing. They'd all be thrown down. And that's what happened in 70 when the Romans came. Also in John chapter 2, uh, disciples actually mentioned that it took 46 years for Herod and the Masons to build this temple. And Jesus said, well, the temple would be destroyed and he would rebuild it in three days. And he said that one day there would be a new temple. An even more 
amazing and impressive temple. So where is this temple? Where is this impressive structure that people can look at and say, wow, that is an impressive structure. That must be an impressive, big, gigantic, amazing God. Paul says something here in 2 Corinthians 6 that I think is absolutely profound. And it's the thing that I just want us to not only hear with our, our minds, but really start to let sink into our hearts. And it's in verse 16. Paul says to the church in Corinth, he says, we are the temple of the living God. We are the temple of the living God. The God who created the heavens and the earth and everything in it doesn't live in temples built by human hands. Instead, he dwells amongst those who he has formed and shaped into his temple. Paul, somewhere else, said to the church in Ephesus, said, you are the temple where God dwells by his spirit. And this is absolutely amazing. We as a church have to, to really reclaim who we are as a people and understand who we are as a people, that we are more than just an organization that is seeking to do some good in our culture. More than an organization that is serving, striving to serve those who are in need. We're more than just a place to get coffee on a Sunday morning. We're more than just a concert venue where you can hear some music. More than a place where you can hear a teaching. No, we are the temple of the living God. We are the place where, where God dwells. His presence dwells amongst us. And it has nothing to do with this amazing structure that we find ourselves in today. It has everything to do with people who have surrendered their life to Jesus. And we together are the temple of the living God. Have you ever thought of yourself that way? We are the temple of the living God. Now, I got my helpers up here doing the puzzles. And they've done a pretty amazing job. So it's a, a puzzle of what? What did you guys construct here? The map of the United States. Now, you guys get the same thing? You guys were kind of done before the girls over here. Nice work. Nice work. Now, but, now, let me ask you this question. Which is the most important piece in that puzzle? Is there a piece that's most important? Ha! <laughs> They're circling Michigan. <laughs> I think it's this green state right here that says California. That one is most important. Is there a most important piece? No, there's not. Because you guys over here have figured something out, right? Because you guys, did you have all the pieces to the puzzle? No, you didn't have all the pieces to the puzzle. So which piece is most important in your puzzle? Probably the ones that are missing, right? Because you're missing Michigan on this one. You're missing Colorado. I think you're missing uh, Florida, yep. And what other state are you missing? Do you know? It's the one that is hard to spell, Mississippi. You're missing that one. So it, here's the thing. Like on these puzzles, is there one piece that is more important than the other? No. They're all important. And the thing that I want us to realize today is that we are the temple of the living God. That is absolutely true. And it's we all together are the temple of the living God. And you need to see yourself as one of those stones. One of those stones that Ben talked about because you are a stone, a part of the temple. And if the stone wasn't there, there would be something missing from the temple. You are a stone. You are a valuable 
part of the temple of the living God. And on top of that, you are being chiseled and formed to fit just perfectly in the place that God wants you to be. It's what Ben was talking about. Those stones were chiseled and shaped just so that they could fit perfectly in place. In the same way, God is doing that with you. Philippians 1.6 says, He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. The Lord is at work in your life, chiseling you, shaping you to fit you exactly in the spot that he wants you to be, to form this amazing temple of the living God, his presence here on earth. But secondly, with that, you are a stone, but you are also just a stone. Because you look at this puzzle, and there are pieces that are important, but if you just have one of the pieces, I'll go to this one, if you just had Utah, would you get a complete picture of the United States? No. You just would have Utah. You know, there's some pretty amazing scenery in Utah, but that would be an incomplete picture of the United States. See, I sometimes think that in our individualistic culture in America, we think that, oh, we can have the complete picture of the Lord by ourselves. Our experience with God, we can experience God in isolation. We can go on a walk and and hear worship music. We can encounter God through his word, but the truth is your experience with God will be incomplete in isolation. There is something valuable about coming together that we together form the temple of the living God. I want us, Moran Park, to recapture that vision of who we are as a people. This is a special time, not because we're all assembled into this room, but because together, followers of Jesus, we form the temple of the living God. And we have a purpose here on this earth, and it's to display God's greatness and his glory to a world that is in desperate need of it. For them to look at us as a temple of the living God and say, wow, how impressive that God is because of the temple that is built. So what does this mean for us today? I want to look at this passage. And I just want to look at a couple things that Paul says. You guys are trying to figure out your favorite states, aren't you? (laughs) I want to look at verses 16 through 18. I think one of the things that this means for us today is that what sets us apart as a people, as a church, isn't a program, isn't something that we do, it's the very presence of God. Listen to verse 16. Paul says, For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will live in them and walk among them. I will be their God and they will be my people. (laughs) Therefore, Come out from among unbelievers. Separate yourselves from them, says the Lord. Don't touch their filthy things, and I will welcome you. I will be your father, and you will be my sons and daughters, says the Lord God Almighty. God says, I will live with them. I will walk among them. I will be their God. Listen to those promises that God shares with us. That the thing that sets us apart, the thing that that makes us unique, is the very presence of God dwells amongst us his people. And that has always been the plan from the very beginning until the very end, that the thing that would separate God's people is that his presence would be with them. All the way in Exodus, God says, I will walk with you. I will guide you. I will be with you. Go the way, all, all the way to Revelation 21. The very end of time, God says, I will dwell. Finally, God will dwell amongst his people. It's absolutely crazy to think That the God of the universe, the God that is perfect, the God that is holy, dwells amongst an imperfect people. 
dwells amongst those who are in Corinth. And the only way that that is possible is because of the blood of Jesus. And so we got to think of ourselves as the place where God chooses to dwell. He doesn't dwell in this fancy temple. He dwells among us. And so there's something special that happens when two or three people come together. There is something divine. There is something holy when two or three come together in the name of Jesus. God promises to be with them. That's why it's so important to be a part of a community, to regularly meet with followers of Jesus, because the presence of God is there in a powerful way. But secondly, the question that I want to ask all of us is, who are we partnering with? If God dwells, the living God dwells amongst his people, why would we dwell with anything or anyone else? I want to read part of this passage out of the message. And it says this, Paul says this, and this is a a summary of, of 2 Corinthians 6. It says this, Don't become partners with those who reject God. How can you make a partnership out of right and wrong? That's not partnership, that's war. Is light best friends with the dark? Does Christ go strolling with the devil? Do trust and mistrust hold hands? Who would think of setting up a pagan idols in God's holy temple? With promises like this to pull us on, dear friends, let us make a clean break with everything that defiles or distracts us. Both within and without, let's make our entire lives fit and holy temples for the worship of God. Paul says, don't become partners with those who reject God. And so in our lives, who are we partnering with? The picture here Paul paints is, he says in another translation, don't be unequally yoked with unbelievers. It's a picture of two oxen, the oxen that that Ben was talking about, bringing these big stones to the temple. They didn't just have one oxen, they would have two oxen that were absolutely equal, pulling And they had to be equal so that they could pull in a straight line and go in the same direction. You didn't want one stronger than the other because it would veer off to the left or to the right. You wouldn't be going in the direction that you would have to go. And so Paul says, don't be yoked with an unbeliever. Don't be connected with someone who doesn't have a similar purpose. Live a life that is separate. Live a life that is holy. Align yourself with those who have a common purpose and a common vision that are all about bringing the glory of God here on earth. So who are you partnering with? I think in this passage we get a clear picture of what our lives should look like as followers of Jesus. How are we to live in this world? We are live to live separate, holy lives. We're to be in the world but not of the world. We're to put God's amazing presence on display. We can't have our lives with one foot in the kingdom of darkness and one foot in the kingdom of this world. And so who in your life are you partnering with? Who in your life are you aligning yourself with? Are there people in your life that are pulling you away from the priorities and passions that the Lord has put on your heart? Ben said, everything communicates something. So what are you communicating with your life by how you live? Because God has created you as an important part of his temple, the temple of the living God. So what I want to do right now is just to have us pray. We're going to transition into this song, Take My Life, And I want you to be thinking of of your lives. Are you are, do you realize that you are part of the temple of the living God? Do you realize that is who you are as somebody who's given their life to Jesus? That you are an integral part of that temple? Do you realize that God is shaping you and molding you and chiseling you and putting you just in the right spot that he wants to place you in? Are you living your life 
completely devoted to Him? Or are you partnering with something that is not of the Lord? Let's pray. God, I thank you for that visual. I thank you for that amazing truth that we together are the temple of the living God. That we have the amazing opportunity to tell the world how great and how awesome you are. To put you on display. And so right now, through the power of your Holy Spirit, I ask that you would would show us maybe an area of our lives, uh, a part of our lives that, that isn't doing a good job of that. Something where we're communicating something differently than you would want us to communicate. God, I thank you that you have reached down into our lives, that you have rescued us, that you have molded us. I pray, God, that we would be a people, people that are completely devoted to you. Hearts that are completely surrendered to you. Hearts that live our lives, where we live our lives all for the glory of your great name. Lord, I ask that you would show us how we fit in this amazing temple that you're constructing. For those who are thinking of themselves as insignificant, God, I ask that you would reveal to them, that you would show them how significant they are. The role that you would have them play the part of the temple that you would have them be in. God, I pray to you that and ask that we as Moran Park, as this part of your body, that we would live our lives completely sold out for the glory of your great name. So take our lives, use them, chisel them, form us into the people that you want us to be. Offer your great name, Jesus, and it's in your name we pray. Amen.